Uh, let's pray, and then we can jump into Acts 11. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather and to worship, to engage with you, to engage with one another, to pray, to open your word. God, this is a special time. This is a set-apart time. And though it is routine for many of us, it's, it's what we do. Sundays at 10.30, we're, we're at church. Um, though it's routine, though many of us have been doing it for a long, long time, it doesn't take away the importance. It doesn't take away the significance. It doesn't take away the specialness of being able to take time each week to gather with our brothers and sisters to hear from you and to engage with you. You tell us in scripture that if we seek, we will find. If we knock, the door will be opened. And that's what we're doing on a Sunday. We're coming and looking for you to engage and hear from you. Each of us comes in this morning having had a variety of different weeks, even a variety of different mornings. But all of us are looking to hear from you and to be reminded of your goodness, to be encouraged, to be challenged. God, you have a word for us this morning. You have something for us today. There's a reason we're in this passage this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on you, to listen and to pay attention and to set aside the distractions and the worries and the doubts and to be able to just be with you. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us minds to comprehend and hearts to believe and hands and feet to respond to what you have for us today. As I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Um, so since Sarah and I have been married, we have almost exclusively lived in older Chicago houses that have needed a little bit of work here and there. Um, and so I have taken it upon myself to try and teach myself how to do some general repairs and things to make the houses nicer so we're not constantly having to hire people out. And so I tell people I'm, I'm relatively handy. I, I, through some serious trial and error as well as YouTube, um, I've kind of figured out my space of what I can do versus what I need to call somebody in on. Um, but so with that, as these projects have happened, there is a phrase that uh, I say to Sarah on a regular basis, it's kind of a joke at this point, where I'm about to start some project, fix something, and I say to her, okay, Sarah, in theory, this should be real quick. Shouldn't be a big deal. In theory, this shouldn't be a big deal usually turns into a week to two weeks of like, hey, you don't have a dryer for a while, or like, hey, that hole, there's just a hole in the wall now, it'll be fine eventually, right? Um, in theory, and then in practice, are two very different things, sometimes. And in my house, it tends to never go the way I think it should go, or, or I want it to go. Sometimes the practical looks very different than the way we think it's gonna go in our heads. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, an ounce of action is worth a ton of theory. See, we all have ideas of what and how we think 
things will, act, things will happen and how we will act when faced with opposition or issues or challenges or projects. Or even the positive, wonderful things. When we think about what's it like to become a husband or a wife, what's it like to become a mom or a dad, what's it like to go back to school after a long time, good, awesome, wonderful things. What's it like to get that next promotion that we so desperately want? We think about how that's going to play out, and we have ideas. In theory, this is how this will go. In theory, this is what I think this can look like. And we can plan and predict, but sometimes we don't know what's going to happen until we're actually in the moment. And so today's chapter is we're in Acts 11, walking through the book of Acts. Today's chapter is about people faced with situations and having to figure out how to go from, in theory, to reality. And from their reactions and how we see some of these people respond to these, these situations, my hope for this morning for all of us is that we walk away with a few practical, real ways to live out our faith as we go about day to day. So Acts 11 begins, uh, verse 1, it says, The apostles and brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So if you haven't been with us, let me catch you up. Acts 10 um, Peter has preached the gospel to some Gentiles. The Gentiles, the outsiders, those people completely against the people of God have received the gospel. Word has traveled now around the area that these Gentiles, these others, these unclean, ridiculous people who we want nothing to do with is the view of the Jews. They have now received the gospel. They have now heard the word of God and it's been preached to them and they've taken it as their own. To those outside of the people of God, the Israelites, the word of God has gone. This is a major shift that has happened, and lots of people have lots of opinions and questions about what happened here in this, in this house with Peter and these Gentiles. And so as a way to address all of these things and, and unify everybody, so let's get one unified message out, Peter goes back to Jerusalem to talk with the believers that are there about everything that happened in Joppa and Caesarea. And those in Jerusalem are not happy with Peter. In verse 3, it says, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. You went to those Gentiles and you ate with them. To share a meal with someone in that day, at that time, it wasn't like us where like, when we think of food, it's just what's the quickest, what's the easiest, let's eat in the car on the way to somewhere. Back then, meals were special and important and intimate. You ate with those Gentiles. What are you thinking, Peter? It's inappropriate, it's weird, it's gross, it's unlawful, it's not right. How dare you? They are mad that he ate with them. They apparently don't even know how deep this story goes and how mad they're about to get, maybe. And so Peter explains to them what happened. In the beginning of chapter 11, it's interesting. Chapter 10 was all of this story of Peter and Cornelius and the Gentiles hearing the word. And then Luke thinks this story is so important that the very next section, he repeats the whole thing. Peter basically tells them what happened in his own words. He says, look, I was praying. I was in Joppa. I was praying. God gives me this vision. This, this sheet comes down from heaven full of all kinds of animals. And God says, rise and eat, Peter. Kill and eat. Take whatever you want. And I told God no, because, you know, arguing with God, that always ends well. And he says, I told God no, I would never do that. I haven't eaten anything unclean before. I'm not going to do it now. And God says, don't you tell me what is clean and unclean. I decide what is clean and unclean. And so when this happens, I have this vision. It happens three different times. After it happens the third time, there's three guys at the door looking for me. God tells me, go with them. Don't hesitate, just go. 
So I go with these three men. We go back to Caesarea to the house of a man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman guard. He's the worst of the worst. I go into his house. He asks me to tell him about what God has been teaching me, all the things I know about the Lord. And so I start to tell him about Jesus. I start to tell him about the gospel, about the good news, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus came, he lived perfectly, he died painfully, and he rose again victoriously. He defeated sin and death and hell and the grave. He wipes away our sins. He forgives us. He gives us new life. I'm telling them all these things. I didn't even get to the end, and the Holy Spirit shows up in this room, and these Gentiles start speaking in tongues. These Gentiles start talking about the glories of God. And there in verse 16 in our passage, we get a little bit of insight into what Peter was thinking at that moment. It says, I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter remembers the words Jesus told the disciples after he was resurrected. Glorified Jesus stood amongst them way back in Acts 1, way back in, like, it was like the end of March for us. For John baptized with the water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. At that time, Jesus was speaking about the day of Pentecost that was going to come. When the Holy Spirit fell on all the believers and there was tangible manifestations of the power of the Holy Spirit in them, speaking in tongues and glorifying God. And as Peter was in this centurion's house, he saw and experienced the same thing with these Gentiles. They're speaking in tongues. They're glorifying God. There's this actual manifestation of the Holy Spirit in them. And he realized that same Holy Spirit that fell on the Jewish believers is now on these Gentiles. And if they have the same Holy Spirit, if God decided to show, make no difference, to show no partiality, to put no barrier between himself and the Gentiles, then who was Peter to do it? Because to do so was to decide that God was wrong. To do so was to oppose what God had orchestrated and would be to oppose God and his will. See, just because someone is different from you, or different from what you think a Christian is supposed to be like, does not mean that that person is any less welcome into the family of God by God. He decides. He looks at the heart. He calls. He chooses he welcomes, he saves. And so Peter lays out his thought process, lays out all that happened, lays out, here's what I was thinking, tells these believing Jews in Jerusalem, and their anger and their arguments fall away, and it says that they went silent. They take all of this in, they begin to process the situation, and they realize this was not something to be angry or disappointed or frustrated about, but rather to celebrate and rejoice how beautiful. Look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay. The Gentiles got the gospel. They get new life as well. There's no debating or arguing, but a simple acceptance of the work of God. No hoops or hurdles to jump through, just acceptance and rejoicing over what God had done. Now, this reaction does not mean everything is smooth sailing and hugs and handshakes the rest of the way for the church. 
In fact, a very large amount, the bulk of the New Testament consists of instruction on how the church is to happen, is to function, is to live and coexist in as a united community despite the very real and very large issues that, ex that exist between Jews and Gentiles for generations. It's a work in progress. And it's still a work in progress for us today. I mean, most churches aren't dealing with the Jew-Gentile separation, but how about Democrat and Republican? How about severe economic discrepancies? How about those people who are married versus the singles? And how do they get along? Or even within the marrieds, how about the married with kids versus the married with no kids? How are they supposed to build relationships? How about those baby boomers and those Gen Zers? How in the world can they ever coexist? People who eat their hot dogs with ketchup versus no ketchup. I mean, things that can just tear a church apart. There are many things that can separate us. We don't have to dig too hard to find ways to put up walls to keep one another from having real relationship and real community. And it's not just within churches. It's actual churches as a united front and denominations who do it too. Looking at other churches as competition or worse, as just bad or inappropriate because of some secondary issue. We find reasons to negate or ignore entire other denominations or worship styles because they're not like ours. See, the church, the big C universal church of Jesus has a very big roof on it. Meaning, there are many more than I think some Christians would like to admit that are welcomed and accepted into the family of God. I said last week that when you look at the major issues attacking our city that Chicago is known for, I believe it is the responsibility of the church to be the ones to stand and through the gospel begin to be agents of unity. But that can't happen if we stay in our own echo chambers only listening to and reading and interacting with people who are just like us. We have to be willing to engage with those from across denominational and cultural lines in order to see the gospel go forward and even engage with those who are, don't even believe the gospel but are doing good and pursuing unity. Whether or not they realize they're acting in a way that promotes the kingdom of God, we need to be able to come alongside them and say, look, we might have different opinions, but we're working towards the same goal. That's most of our motivation for what we do in our neighborhood of Roscoe Village, to serve and connect in this place. While the neighborhood might not say that they're Christians, might not want to necessarily come to church, they want to see Autobahn, they want to see the schools improve, they want to see the street fest and the events happen and be nice. They want the streets to be clean, and so we can come alongside and say, you know what, we love this place too, and we can serve alongside and build relationships. We see the gospel go forward. We live out the gospel with our words and our actions. But as we connect with other churches, we connect cross-denominational lines, we need to be able to focus on the major things and put aside the secondary issues, right? We need to be able to say, okay, we agree on the gospel. We agree on Jesus. We agree on his life, death, burial, and resurrection being the only way to salvation. And if that's there, then the secondary stuff, we can talk about it, we can debate it, but ultimately... That can't be the things that keep us from building relationships and working to see the gospel move forward in our city. We want to see the betterment of the community around us for those who don't know Jesus. And so we see in verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. 
there's this movement that starts to happen. You know what, I'm gonna actually just read this whole passage. Let's go to 19. So I wanna give you guys a full context here. Go to verse 19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Stop right there. So way back in chapter 8, Luke told us uh, that arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Remember in chapter 8, Saul is ravaging, persecuting the church. Everybody flees Jerusalem. They scatter all over the land. These believers here in chapter 11 say they go as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. It's map day, everybody. Um, Okay, so we have Jerusalem way down here. Persecution happens. People start to scatter all around this area, and they make up into here. Phoenicia is, is basically this whole area. They even get all the way up into Antioch. Some of them go from Antioch over to Cyprus, this little island. But way up here is Antioch way far away from Jerusalem. That's how far they have scattered to avoid this persecution by Saul. They travel, and as they do that, they are sharing the gospel with other Jews they met along the way. They start to tell other people about what God had done in and among them. And it makes sense that as these Jewish believers are scattering from Jerusalem and going out into these other lands, they're really only focusing on speaking to other Jews because in a sense, it makes sense that they're fleeing persecution in Jerusalem, and so the only people they're going to share about the thing that they're being persecuted for is people they feel are safe, right? People they can trust. They knew culturally, relationally, ethnically, they had built-in connection points to be able to share with other Jews, and they could show them in their own scriptures, look, this Messiah you're holding out hope for, this Messiah you're clinging and waiting for, he already came, his name is Jesus, he's the one, and they could point people to Christ. Over time, though, the thought forms, if this message is good for our Jewish brothers and sisters, well, we don't know what's coming next. We don't know how this persecution is going to go, but this message needs to keep going forward. It's got to also be good for those outside of Judaism, right? And so we get to verse 20, and I want to read it again because it's, it's a verse that is easy to read and skip right over, but if we slow down, there's a lot to unpack from verse 20. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. This is one of those important verses that have ripple consequences for the rest of Acts. A group is preaching in Antioch, which leads to this city becoming a major capital of Christianity, especially for the Gentile Christians who have no connection connection to Jerusalem. This city, Antioch, is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem and 20 miles inland of the Mediterranean Sea. So can you, go, can you go back to that map, Peter? So it's about 300 miles from Antioch to Jerusalem, about 20 miles in off the sea. Thank you, Peter. In the first century, it was a city that population-wise got up to close to half a million people. When the Roman Empire conquered Syria in 64 BC, the city was made a free city. Basically, it, made, it had its own local government. It's the third largest city in the world at the time. You have Rome, you have Alexandria, you have Antioch. Warren Wearsby says uh, its magnificent buildings helped give it the name Antioch the Golden, Queen of the East. 
The main street of the city was more than four miles long, paved with marble and lined on both sides by marble, by marble colonnades. It was the only city in the ancient world at the time that had its streets lighted at night. Antioch was big and impressive, but it also had a very dubious reputation as a place of great immorality. There were multiple cults devoted to false gods in the area, such as Artemis and Apollo and Estarte, all of which carried with them physical mutilation, over-sexualized worship, and then just straight-out prostitution as a form of worshiping these false gods. It was a major metropolis with close access to the waterways, contributing to a diverse blend of people from all over the known world. It was truly a multi-ethnic place. But again, with that diversity comes a diverse array of religions, idols, and distractions, people who are indifferent, antagonistic toward the gospel. And it was in this place, this messy, hard place full of all kinds of different people from all over the known world bringing all kinds of different belief systems, it was in this place that a church would be planted and would grow and thrive and become the hub of Christianity. This church would be the one that sends Paul on his missionary journeys. It would be the place where much early doctrine would be developed and taught and established, where many would be discipled and trained and sent out to pastor these churches that Paul is going out planting. It would change the very way this city would be viewed throughout history moving forward. How does all of that happen? How does this city go from being this major metropolis full of all kinds of inappropriate behavior to being the place that births the church. It's the gospel. The gospel does what it does. It changes, it transforms, it renews, it rebuilds, it restores. But how does the gospel get here? We said it, it traveled there because of persecution. Well, who was it? Is this the work of Peter again, right? We've seen Peter traveling around, preaching, starting churches, starting groups. Is it Peter? Is it, is it Philip? Right, we saw the last time we saw Philip, a big whirlwind took him and just launched him across the country. Did, did the whirlwind catch him and throw him over to Antioch? Was it the other apostles? No, none of that. Remember what it said in Acts chapter 8? Everybody was scattered in all these regions except the apostles. So it wasn't even any of the original 12 or original 11 that helped to see the gospel grow and expand in this place. Verse 20 says there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who were preaching the Lord Jesus. Who was it that was part of this monumental expansion and growth in this rocky, hard soil of animosity? Some guys, I don't know. We don't even have their names. We know nothing about them except that they came from Jerusalem during the persecution by Saul. They preached the gospel to the Greeks in Antioch. They weren't looking for fame. They weren't trained. They didn't go to Bible school. They weren't even part of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. These were some men who knew that Jesus was God, that knew that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead, and that he offered forgiveness of sins and new life and hope and grace to anyone who would believe. They knew their lives had been changed and affected by putting their faith in Jesus, and so they told others about that same reality. They didn't see the Great Commission as just a nice idea, a good theology or a concept or, man, it would be great. It wouldn't, ideally, in theory, it'd be really nice if we did that. They didn't see it as just in theory. It was reality. They took it to heart and they did it. They knew that they believed something good and beautiful and life-changing and they told others about it. 
because they were faithful and stewarded the gospel well, what could be considered the greatest, most influential church ever gets started in Antioch. And what they preached, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. They understood the context they were in. Because this is Antioch, and while Antioch has a large Jewish population, when communicating with other people outside of the Jewish population, they didn't put the emphasis on Jesus as the Messiah because that wouldn't matter to anybody else. Everybody else outside of Judaism, they don't know anything about a Messiah. They don't care about a Messiah. These people had spent their lives with either absolutely no religious exposure, or if they did, as we said before, it was full of idolatry and sexual acts or self-mutilation. They knew nothing of a Messiah. But the idea of Lord, a master, one who is in complete control and authority, that makes sense across religious sects. Because the pagan religions of Antioch all had within them some higher power, some created being who was supposed to deliver them a better way of life, a better afterlife, a better current life, a better way to do everything. And now there's this group preaching about a God-man who could do those things, who could be the one to deliver a better way of life, and could even conquer the grave. And so while these hunks of wood and stone that the Hellenists worshipped hadn't produced anything, these Christians had seen and experienced firsthand the miraculous. They had seen and experienced firsthand the power and work of the Holy Spirit. What they said had validity to it because they lived it out. However, it was that these unnamed evangelists shared their faith. It was pure. It was, it was genuine and glorified Jesus as we see in verse 21, it says, The hand of the Lord was with them, and many turned to Jesus. Many put their faith and hope in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Once again, we see regular people. Regular people who had the Holy Spirit share what they knew, and God did what he does. He called people to himself and changed their lives. These men of Cyprus and Cyrene were just regular people stepping into the moments and conversations and opportunities God presented to them, and God showed up and did a work through them. I say often, the Bible is not about us. We often try to put ourselves into the stories when it's not really about us. And when we do put ourselves into the stories, we always want to be the hero, don't we? Right, it's David and Goliath. Well, man, I'm David, and I got that sling and that stone. I'm going to kill me a giant. Daniel and his friends go into the fiery furnace. Well, I'm standing right there with them, not getting burned. But in fact, usually in those stories, if anybody we're supposed to identify with, it's not the hero. In that story of David and Goliath, you're not David. You're the cowering army that doesn't want to go fight, that needs a savior. But if you're looking for someone to strive after, to try and identify with, to try and emulate, I think it's these unknown, forgotten evangelists. They get no glory. They get no credit. There's no credit given or taken, just faithful men who show up telling people that what they knew, telling people that the gospel had changed their lives and wanted to see that go forward. He wanted to see other people know how good God is. And see, the only reason they were success, successful was because God was with them. It was the hand of the Lord that guides and leads us. 
just as it was back then. It is the hand of the Lord that guides and leads us to turn to the Lord. It's the hand of the Lord that holds us when we are scared. It's the hand of the Lord that carries us when we are too exhausted to take another step. It's the hand of the Lord that pulls us up when we are fallen and we are put back on our feet. It's the Lord's hand that caused that eunuch in his chariot to see the light of the gospel. It was the Lord's hand that led Cornelius and his whole household to receive the Holy Spirit. And it is the Lord's hand that brought about a mass receiving of the Lord in this Gentile pagan city of Antioch. Things are moving. Things are happening. We are a long way away from where this book started with 11 guys in an upper room hiding out because they don't want to end up strung up on a cross like Jesus. Even post-resurrection, when things are growing and thousands are added to the way, the believers are meeting in the temple courts and the numbers are growing and there's this structure had to be put in place and deacons had to be set out. They're building things on the fly. It was always contained to the known, right? Even as things started to get bigger than what the disciples could handle, it was at least contained to the Jewish people. It was contained to the, the people they knew, to the familiar, to the bloodline. But now Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, they have tasted and seen that Jesus is God, that the Lord is good. They have come to know the truth of the Jesus of Nazareth. And even these Gentiles, who though they are neighbors, probably when the apostles heard ends of the earth, Gentiles are ends of the earth in their mind. Now they're starting to hear and hear and believe. Excuse me. Reports are piling up that the gospel is spreading, and as it happens, the apostles continue to send delegates to these different places to see what's going on so, and get a report back to understand where is the gospel at now. And so that's what we see in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Barnabas has popped up a couple of times in Acts. He has proven himself, as it says in verse 24, to be a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. He was reliable and dependable not only in his tasks given to him, but more importantly, just in his life. He was a man who walked with integrity. He was the kind of person that would represent the church in Jerusalem well, and beyond representing the apostles well, he represented Christ well. He had a reputation earned through generosity and encouragement of others. And if we can remember back, for those who have been here, way back to Acts 4, we will recall that Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. The very place some of these unnamed evangelists were from. So he had this special connection, this special heart for these people who have been scattered abroad. Barnabas lived his faith out in a tangible, observable way. See, yes, your faith, your relationship with God, it's yours, right? It's my personal walk with Jesus. But also we say often around here, when you become a Christian, you get saved from the wrath of God to be a blessing to others. We talk a lot about church, about fruit-bearing. Fruit-bearing ministries, fruit-bearing lives. When a tree bears fruit, it's not doing it to benefit itself. It benefits others. 
whether by giving us delicious apples to consume or by spreading its seeds so that other trees can grow. Fruit bearing is not a selfish thing. It's for others to benefit from. If we are Christians, we should be bearing fruit, producing results as a byproduct of our faith, not to win or earn our salvation or to impress God with our goodness or impress others with our goodness, but rather the natural reaction of a person saved by God through faith in Jesus is to live a life that serves, benefits, and lifts others up. I said Barnabas' faith was observable. Fruit trees are observable. You can see whether they are growing fruit or not, or whether dormant or they're sick. So simply put, others should be able to see Christ in our lives, right? They should see fruit produced from our faith in Jesus. There should be evidence in the way that we live, the way that we are family members, the way that we are co-workers, the way that we are just human beings living in this world. There should be evidence of the reality that God has done something in and through you if you are a Christian. When Barnabas gets to Antioch, I'm sure he didn't know what to expect. But it says his heart was made full of gladness and rejoicing as he saw and heard how God had moved among the people. So maybe he asked a bunch of questions or he just listened to them share stories of what it was, had been happening. But what he saw and heard was the grace of God among them. The grace of God among them. It, it was tangible. It is tangible. It's observable. You can feel it among God's people when they are living in line with God's will. You ever talk to somebody who just recently came to faith, to, to someone who's a new Christian? Somebody super excited about Jesus, somebody just on fire for the Lord, somebody passionate, almost overwhelmed by how good God is. It's encouraging and it's inspiring and it's infectious, right? It's delight and Barnabas had a whole group of people like that surrounding him. They were excited and full of zeal and joy. And that excitement and passion is great and good and wonderful, and many of us would be wise to remember back to those days and rediscover our excitement for the gospel and our own salvation. But those who have walked with Christ for any duration of time also knows that it's not all sunshine and happy rainbows. It can be hard and exhausting at times. And Barnabas knew firsthand. Remember, he was part of the church when Ananias and Sapphira, when all that went down. He was around when the apostles got arrested and beaten up. He was around when Stephen got stoned to death. He had experienced in a very short time that this life of following Jesus brought some tough choices and hard situations. And so while he was glad to hear and see the new brothers and sisters, he also wanted to do what he does best, encourage them, right? He's the son of encouragement. To be an encouragement, he, did, he didn't want to scare them or try and, you know, be a rain cloud on their parade, but rather to let them know a key element needed in the life of a Jesus follower is the perseverance. See, it's easy when it's fun, but it ain't always fun. And so perseverance with a purpose, to remember the why we pray. Remember the why we pray when we don't feel like it, why we go into the word even when we don't feel like sitting and reading scripture, why we show up on Sundays even when we don't feel like showing up on Sundays. We keep showing up, we keep pursuing God because we know that God will keep showing up if we do. The more we pursue him, the more he will reveal himself to us and in doing so will strengthen us and encourage us and give us opportunities to glorify him in our words and our actions. So we keep showing up. 
And so Barnabas told these guys, look, it's going to get hard. Keep showing up. I know you're excited now. Keep showing up. Don't lose that fire. Keep showing up. And so Barnabas stays in Antioch, and he's encouraging the believers there. And many are coming to the Lord. And we've seen in other places in Acts, the gospel is doing what it does. It's changing lives. It's calling people to God. As that happens, they're coming to faith, and this group starts to grow. And Barnabas looks around and says, I need some help. These ratios are out of whack. And so it says he goes to Tarsus to go look for Saul. The phrase to look for there is to search laboriously, to go hunting for, because Saul's hiding. Saul is back home in Tarsus. Remember the last time we saw Saul, a bunch of people wanted him dead for preaching Jesus. And so the apostles snuck him out of town and said, go back home, get away, don't make a nuisance of yourself. And so Barnabas has to really hunt down Paul. He finally does. So Barnabas and Saul head back to Antioch, and for a year they teach and preach. They see new followers join and encourage and strengthen those who are already believers. Antioch was very different and diverse from Jerusalem, had a different feel to it. The church looked very different because the city was full of all kinds of people, and it was all kinds of people hearing and believing the gospel. This is the first, this church in Antioch, this first year is the first real example of what it means that God shows no partiality and that all are welcome into the family of God. That verse that so many of us learn at such a young age, for God so loved the world, it's put on display here at the church in Antioch. Everybody was welcome to the table. And so as the church is growing and this informal and formal teaching and preaching is happening, it is here in this city of Antioch that the followers of Christ are first called Christians. Christianos. The anos means the people of. So when you have Herodianos, those are the people of Herodin, or Caesarianos, those who follow Caesar, it's the people who are dedicated to, the people who are followers of whether it was to mock them or just sort of a nickname for these people who were constantly talking about this Christ guy. However it was used, at the end of the day, it signified that these people were known above and beyond everything else as the servants, followers, dedicated to Christ. It only shows up two other times in the New Testament, but we see by the second century in historical writings, it's more widely used and accepted of the church itself. These followers of Christ become known as his people, which would mean that the teaching that was happening was about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And as the teaching got out, more and more people saw these followers actually match their lives up with what they were teaching. Their lives, they got known as Christians because they were teaching about Christ and what it means to follow him, and then they were actually living that out. And people said, that's one of those, I've heard about those Christ followers, he's one of those Christians, she's one of those Christians. Their lives matched what they claimed to believe, does ours. The early church had no shortage of opportunities to show that they actually believed what they said they believed, and they had it here at the very end of the chapter here as a prophecy shows up. It says in verse 27, In those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They hear a prophecy, they take it seriously. They're able to financially send relief and help to Christians that would be hit by this famine. And we know from history, the reign of Claudius from AD 41 to 54, it was marked by horrible famines throughout the land. 
God has always told his people, be generous. And that instruction is a way to reflect who God is, because God is generous. He shows it most clearly when he sends his son to die for us. And so the church is to be generous. So be generous. And I'm not talking just financially, but with your time, with your talents. Give because God gave to you. Give because you trust that God's going to provide. Give in a way that shows people that you actually live in response to the gospel and called to this new life. The church in Antioch gave. And who better, who was more trustworthy, who was more dependable than to send Barnabas and Saul? And that's what they did. And so these two travel back to Jerusalem to deliver this money. And this is kind of a preview of what life is going to be like for Saul and Barnabas, traveling from church to church, helping people out all the while stepping into moments and opportunities that God was preparing for them to live out their faith in a very practical way. That's what this chapter provides for us, a reminder, an encouragement that the gospel is not just a theological concept. It's not just something we can learn and debate and discuss, but rather it is the very core of the Christian life. It is the thing that should influence and direct everything about our lives which means we don't stand in the way of who gets to hear the gospel or be welcomed into the church community. Instead, we rejoice and celebrate and welcome all people in. I said it last week, and I'll say it again. We are not the gatekeepers of the family of God. We are the lights illuminating the dark road for those people walking in darkness. The lights that point people to Jesus. That is our call and purpose as the people of God. And one of the ways that we do that is to share what we know. Be faithful to the gift you have. Share it. You know Christ. You know truth. You know of the life and hope and joy and grace and mercy found in our relationship with God through Jesus. Share that with others. It doesn't matter if you have all of the answers to all the questions. It doesn't matter if you've been formally trained. You know enough. You have enough to share those things. We don't do it for the fame or the notoriety. We don't do it to add some kind of spiritual headcount. We don't do it to try and win God's favor or impress him. We do it because we know we have something good and we want other people to know it too. We tell people about good restaurants and good movies. What do you think would happen if Christians were as free and open with their invitations to church and conversations about the gospel as we are with where you can find a good taco? This city would be overrun by the gospel. Share what you know, and God is going to do something in and through you. And so as we share what we know about God and the gospel, and we do that without predetermined judgment, continue to tell others about Jesus, there's going to be those who respond to that truth and believe. And in fact, over time, by God's grace and through God's grace, we're going to see many people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. As that happens, We are to encourage them, to build them up, to strengthen them, and to build one another's up. Those of us who are already walking in a relationship with Jesus are called to be the welcoming committee, to encourage and celebrate and rejoice with people as they choose Jesus. And as they grow, and as they learn, and as they lead, and they are used by God to rejoice in those, we are to rejoice in those things and celebrate them and not judge them or cut them down or compare ourselves to them or point at the ways that they do ministry different than we think ministry should be done. We celebrate the victories because those are the victories for the kingdom of God, not for us. Find people and opportunities to encourage and build others up. Don't wait for them to just show up. Go find, go actively find ways to encourage other people, to remind them to be thankful for what God is doing and to challenge them to continue to persevere in their faith. 
Life is hard. Being a Christian in Chicago in 2022 is not always easy. Perseverance is the key and vital to what God has called us to do. So be sure to spur one another on in good works. Let's live this life and run this race together as the community of God he has made us to be. And so we share and we give and we encourage and we share what we know and we give of ourselves and our time and our energy and our finances. We give of our experiences. We give of our knowledge. We are to be a generous people because our God is generous. We are to be a people known to serve and give and do what we can to care for those around us, not just our fellow Christians, but those in our sphere of influence. When opportunities present themselves, give. Trust that God is going to take care of you because God is going to take care of you. If you are a Christian, you believe you're going to die one day and you are going to stand before God and he is going to welcome you into the family of God, into heaven to spend all of eternity celebrating, rejoicing, living with no pain, no fear, no tears, all of the stuff in Revelation 21. We believe our eternity is set in Christ, that we trust that that's going to happen. We can trust God with our finances. We can trust God with our time. We can trust God with the things of this world. If we trust him with the big stuff, we can trust him with this stuff. When we make it a point to remember and rediscover and re-remind ourselves of the gospel daily, we are going to see tangible, real byproduct of what it means and what that does to and through us. We are called to live in response to the gospel that reveals, and as we do that, it's going to reveal real and tangible evidence of God's working in our lives. Being a Christian isn't just polite platitudes and niceties. It's not just Sundays for an hour or two. When we choose to live in response to what God did for us, we begin to see the practical outpouring and response of the gospel in our lives as individuals and a community. And others begin to see and know the grace of God is here among us. Man, my prayer as we wrap up is that we would live as men and women who live in response to the gospel, tangibly, really bearing fruit, and that this church would be known as a place where God can see the grace of God among us. Let's pray to that end. God, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for calling us to yourself. We thank you for being patient so that those who have heard the gospel could hear the gospel and could, and could be welcomed into the family of God. You also call us to not just wait. We're not just saved and killing time until Christ comes back. You saved us with a purpose. To be your ambassadors, to be your lights, to be those who reflect and point others to you. God, help us to desire to know you more. Give us the strength, give us the energy, give us the perseverance when we don't feel like it, when we don't, when we get overwhelmed by the world, when we get overwhelmed by our situations, help us to remember you are good and you have life for us. There is always refreshment to be had in you. And as we read, as we pray, as we engage with one another, as we pursue you, it's going to produce results. God, help us to help us to live like we actually believe what we say we believe. 
Help us to be open and honest with what we say what we believe. Help us to share these things. Give us the boldness. Give us the courage. Give us the opportunities. You called us for a purpose. You called us with a purpose in mind, let God, and you have opportunities set up ahead of time for us to walk into. Give us the eyes to see those opportunities and the boldness to step in. You know we don't have all the answers. You know, you know our shortcomings. You know places and, and moments and the stuff that we don't know. So God, help us to trust you. That when those situations come, when those opportunities do come, help us to trust that you're going to do what you're going to do. You don't need us, but you invite us to be part of what you're doing in this world, and we're so thankful for that. God, help us to respond to this great, beautiful message of the gospel, this fact, this reality that you sent your son to die for us, that you have offered us new life and forgiveness and hope and a new, better, full life. So God, as we go out and we have school and work and family and friends, it's a whole world of opportunities for us to share the gospel with our words and in our actions. Help us to choose those things, not just in theory, but in reality. Amen. So the band